have you with us as well. Uh, welcome to us. And so good to see you. Anybody online, it's great to have you too with us. Um, we are so glad you're here. How's everybody doing? You're right? We are in week two of our Exodus series here at The Vine, and we're studying the book over Exodus uh, over the next six months or so. And uh, this week, we actually get into the text itself. This week, we find ourselves right at the beginning of Exodus chapter one. And uh, this week, we're also unveiling for you a couple of tools that we've created in this series uh, so that you can really dive deep into Exodus. You see, for us, our heart is, is that Exodus is not just a sermon series that you come to. Exodus is a book that you study yourself over these next six weeks, uh, next six months. And we want you to, to find yourself uh, opening the pages of Scripture during the week. We want you to be thinking and reflecting about the things that we speak about on Sunday. But more than that, we want you in the text itself. And I feel like if, if, if all you do in the series is come on Sunday and listen to me or other preachers unpack a text, that's one thing. But if you're then diving into the Scriptures yourself, if you're then asking God for Exodus yourself, if you're opening the Word during the week and saying, God, I need this. This is a, a reality in my life. I can tell that I've got some slavery that I'm a sin to, that I'm broken and holding back from. And, and Lord, I want freedom myself. And I'm opening the pages. And, I, and I'm grateful that I get what I get on Sundays, but that's not enough for me. I want the Scriptures to come alive for me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we got some ways to go. That's good. So we've created a couple of tools to help you to get into the Word. First of all, um, I want you to know this series is structured. I told you last week it's 24 weeks. We're going to structure it in two segments of 12 weeks each. So between now and the end of June is part one. Part two will begin at the end of August and will go all the way to the middle of November. Uh, there'll be a break for the summer for about six weeks or so in July and most of August. But we're, we're breaking it up in two big Blocks. Now, one thing that I also said last week is that uh, the whole book of Exodus is structured around five movements. Uh, that's the way it's written. It's written in these five movements. It's also the way that we believe that all Exodus from any slavery into freedom happens in our lives through these five movements. God uses them today just like he did for the Israelites back then. And those five movements, as we talked about last week, are slavery, promise, liberation, identity, and home. And so we've structured this whole uh, sermon series around those five movements. So we want you to be able to track every single week, where are we in the book of Exodus? Like what passage are we in? And we also want you to be able to track with these five things to help you to know how we're progressing through that journey. So in order to do that, we've created a tool. Uh, we've actually made a bookmark for you that you can either put in your physical Bible or you can put in another book or you can stick it on your fridge. Uh, the bookmark looks like this. Uh, that's the front and the back of it. Um, and what you'll see, Every single week, it has the date of that Sunday. Uh, it has the topic that we're speaking about. But most importantly, it's got the passage of Scripture we're preaching from or looking at as a church on that Sunday so that in preparation, you can pray. You can read that passage for yourself. You can come on a Sunday already soaking in the Word of God. And what you'll notice here is we've got the five movements, slavery, promise, um, uh, liberation, identity, and home. So again, you're able to track through the whole series. So if you miss a couple of weeks and you're coming back to the vine, maybe you're away for business, or whatever, or holiday, you come back, you might be like, where are we in the story? Well, you've got this. It'll tell you exactly where you are. It'll tell you what passage we're in, and it will tell you which movement we're a part of. Is that helpful? Right. You will get that next week. <laughs> yeah, babies. 
You got to come back for that piece, you know? You got to come back for that one. We're going to hand that one out to you guys this week. But we do actually have something for you to take home this week, and I'm really excited about this. Again, our heart in this series is not just that you hear something on a Sunday, but you'll begin to study Scripture yourself. And so one of the ways that we've done that, our creative team have done an amazing job. We have created a coffee table uh, book for you on Exodus, and particularly Exodus part one uh, between now and the end of June. Uh, What this is, is a beautiful book. Uh, filled with incredible images and resource, Uh, some of the stuff that we took ourselves as part of the filming, others that we have a license. Um, But what's most important in this is that every chapter is a devotion that we've written uh, that uh, connects to a specific passage that we're preaching that week, okay? So the whole point of this is that we want you to come on Sunday, hear what's said on Sunday, but then we want you to go away and read a deeper reflection on what we spoke about on Sunday in your own time. These are written in a way that you can't do this in five minutes. This is not a brush-your-teeth devotion, okay? <laughs> this is a 15 to 20-minute read it pray about it, soak in it, which is why we've made it a book. It's something that you can keep at home, put in your living room, put by your bed, whatever you want to do, uh, and utilize it that way. These devotions have been written by one of our congregation members. His name is Chris Webster. He comes to our 2 p.m. service. He is a phenomenal writer, theologian, and thinker. And his reflections, he wrote, uh, I actually reached out to him four years ago. I'm like, we're going to do this crazy thing called the Exodus Project. We're going to do this whole thing. We're going to make films. I'd love you to write a devotion for every single week of the series. Uh, And so he went away. He was very grateful that we delayed, by the way, so he could keep writing. Uh, And he went away, and he wrote all the devotions, and he wrote them without knowing what I was going to say on a Sunday. So it sits completely separate to what I'm going to teach you, which is why it's a beautiful compliment for you. And here's the amazing thing. You get to take one of these home today. Okay, We have one of these for every single person here, uh, and it's completely free. Yes, completely free for you. You know, one of the things that we realize here at The Vine, we're a broad socioeconomic demographic here, uh, and we don't want anyone to miss out on this resource if you can't afford it. Uh, So we decided to give it away for free. There is a catch, though. Two catches. Number one, um, we only have enough for physically everybody across our three services. So what I do not want to see after the service is you walking away with 20 copies like this because you want to give it to your friends and family who don't come to the Vine, okay? This is for us here at the Vine. Uh, you can, we got enough copies for every single one of you uh, to take a copy, but please do not take more than just your own personal copy this week. If we have any left over at the end of this week, uh, we will make them available next week and you can take as many as you want next week, okay? But for a starting point, uh, just one today. Is that okay? Here's the second little catch. Although I say it's free, and it is, if you would like to make a donation towards its cost, <laughs> we would be very helpful, and that would be very good for us. Uh, so we're suggesting a $100 donation uh, for this if you would like to. You don't have to. Again, hear my words. Please take it home for free, okay? But if you are able to, uh, and you'd like to give 100 or maybe more than that uh, to help with the cover of the printing of it, we would love you to do that. You're going to get this. Uh, it's going to be on the second floor after the service in the upper house. Hey, everybody in the upper house, you get a copy as well. Just come down the stairs after the service, and you can grab it from the lobby here. You don't need to rush. There's enough available for everybody. Is that awesome? Yes. All right, all right. So now... There's another reason why we've made you this amazing resource that we wanted to generously give to you today. Because it actually connects to what the starting point of Exodus, the book of Exodus, is all about. Because the cultural and contextual backdrop to the first verses in Exodus is the idea of abundant blessings that have been handed and given out. 
The book of Exodus begins right off the back of the narrative from the book of Genesis. There's no break. They flow from one to the next. And what we see right at the end of Genesis is something that has happened to Joseph. Joseph, the 11th son of Jacob. Jacob, who's the grandson of Abraham. And we see right at the end of Genesis that uh, Joseph is sold into slavery by his own brothers. And he is trafficked to Egypt. And although his circumstance is a terrible beginning, God's favor and honor is on Joseph. And whilst Joseph is there, Pharaoh has a dream. And Pharaoh's dream is very disturbing to him. And he asks for his own court magicians and astrologers to interpret the dream. No one can interpret the dream. And somebody says, there's a Hebrew in our land who has been able to interpret other dreams for other people. He might be able to interpret for you. So Pharaoh calls Joseph to him, and Joseph interprets the dream through the power of God. And in the dream, Joseph sees that what God is saying to Pharaoh is that there is a time coming of abundance and a time coming of famine. And Joseph basically says to Pharaoh, hey, we need to start storing up food now in the time of abundance because a time of famine is coming. And if we don't have those resources available, then uh, we're going to really suffer in famine. Well, Pharaoh agrees, uh, believes in Joseph. In fact, he actually empowers him to become the number two person in power over all of Egypt, in particular over the land of Egypt. And so Joseph goes and he builds storehouses. He begins to take the grain. He stores it there. And when the famine years come, the nations around Egypt are really suffering. Famine hits hard, and it hits the people of Egypt hard too. But because of Joseph's insight, his wisdom, and his hard work, there is the abundance available for Egypt. Now, at this time, Joseph then goes to Pharaoh. And he says, look, my family, talking about his father Jacob and his remaining family, at that time there was about 70 people in Jacob's family. Joseph goes to Pharaoh and says, can I bring Jacob to Egypt? Can I bring him here as a refuge? Because this land has an abundance right now. And basically, Pharaoh, because of all the incredible things that Joseph had done for him, Pharaoh agrees. And at that point, Jacob and his family are able to travel to Egypt. Now, I'm going to show you a map. This is a modern map of uh, Egypt. We're going to use this map a lot throughout our series. It is a modern map rather than the one uh, in the ancient times, but that's because it connects to a lot of what we're going to be teaching for us. Now, um, this area up here roughly was Canaan at the time uh, of uh, the beginning of the book of Exodus. Okay, the modern day Israel wasn't yet boundaried like this. Uh, They lived in this area up here. And so it was from there that Jacob and his 70 people would travel. Now, this is Cairo, the modern day city of Cairo. This is the Sinai Peninsula, uh, where a lot of the Exodus narrative takes place. This is Mount Sinai, right about down in here. Now, very importantly, when Jacob and his family comes, uh, right around about here is a land called Goshen. In fact, we've got another map here that makes that clear to you. This area right here became known in the Bible as Goshen. And Goshen was the area that Pharaoh gave to the Israelites to be able to settle in. And this is where Jacob came. This is where Joseph uh, would have spent time as well. Uh, And this is where the Israelites were able to take refuge during famine. They were able to receive the food that had been prepared for them. And this is the starting point of Exodus chapter 1. We're now going to start our journey. Are you excited? All right, here we go. Exodus 1 verse 1. These are the names of the sons of Israel who went to Egypt with Jacob, each with his family. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. The descendants of Jacob numbered 70 in all, and Joseph was already in Egypt. Now Joseph and all his brothers and all the generations died. 
But the Israelites were fruitful and multiplied greatly and became exceedingly numerous so that the land was filled with them. Now, I said last week that one of the things the author of Exodus, Moses, who also authored Genesis, the same person, he's writing the book of Exodus using language and imagery that connects to the Genesis creation event of Genesis 1, 2, and 3. And right here at the start of the book of Exodus, we see a great example of this. I want to read to you verse 7 once again. It says, But the Israelites were fruitful and multiplied greatly and became exceedingly numerous so that the land was filled with them. The words that Moses is choosing here are very specific because he's linking what uh, the starting point is for Israel at the beginning of Exodus to the call that humanity had in Genesis chapter 1 and the call and the blessing that God gave humanity. Let me show you Genesis 1.28, which also Moses wrote. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over every living creature that moves on the ground. So exactly what Moses is doing here is he's saying at the beginning of the Exodus narrative, there's this connection to the beginning of God's call on humanity where God said, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bless humanity, male, female. I created you. You're made in my image and you're going to be a blessing. And here's the blessing. You're going to be able to multiply. You're going to be prosperous. You're going to be able to fill the earth. And so when Moses starts Exodus, he says, you need to know that my people are in a blessing. You need to know where they are. They're in this place where they're receiving a great blessing from Egypt. This place is an abundant blessing to us. And in that, we're living out the call of humanity right in this land. Now, we know what happens next in the story. We know that, that slavery comes. But it's really interesting that Moses, before he tells us about that, he starts with the Genesis 1 and 2 picture. In other words, it's like almost like Moses is saying, our time in Egypt for 380 years before slavery happened was like our Garden of Eden. It was an abundant place. We had favor there. Pharaoh liked us. There was a, a beautiful environment. Now, yes, that turns into Genesis 3. <laughs> that turns into the slavery that's to come. But the starting point is good. And some of you resonate with this in this room. The journey that there is between sometimes something starting well and ending up really bad. Some of you in here, it's like a relationship. It started so well, but it's turned bitter and it's painful now. For some of you here, it's like a job. The job started great. You loved it at the start. It was a great blessing to you, but now you've become bitter and it's, it's annoying and you hate it and you want to do something else. It's interesting how fickle the human experience is. And Moses wants to pick up on that right at the start and say, know that there was blessing, know that there was favor, but it's so easy for that favor to change in a heartbeat. Now, at this point, all we have is Moses's word that this happened to Israel and happened to Egypt. But what actual evidence is there? I mean, before we look at anything else in the Exodus story, surely we have to start by saying this is actual historical truth. We need to know that this is not just some fairy tale myth, but it actually sits in some actual historical truth. We're not going to just take Moses' word for it. What is there in Egypt itself today that helps us to understand that this is the reality for God's people, that this actually took place? Well, here's an amazing thing. When I started researching this whole project for Exodus and I was researching about the evidence that exists, I discovered a really interesting thing. There's hardly any evidence in Egypt, that Israel even lived there, let alone that the Exodus happened. There's very, very, very little evidence at all. And that should concern us. 
Because what is this thing then? Is this, is this book just a, a, some story that's been made up? Or does it root itself in actual archaeological evidence and actual historical events? Well, to answer that question, let me take you now back to Egypt. first thing you need to know about the Exodus is that it's more than just an event. In fact, it's perhaps the most significant demonstration that we have in all of our scriptures of God's dealing on a daily basis with humanity, of his power and control over nations, and of course his ability to literally change the course of history. But the Exodus is more than just old history. It's also alive still today. I mean, it's celebrated regularly by Jews at the Passover every year and by Christians at Easter. But perhaps more than that, the Exodus has become a metaphor for revolution, for those of oppression to the social injustices of the world. I mean, from Mahatma Gandhi, from Martin Luther King Jr., from Bob Marley, all of them have evoked the imagery of the Exodus and have spoken about Moses' cry to let my people go. All of which is fascinating when you consider one sobering fact. There's actually very little archaeological evidence that Israel was ever in Egypt, let alone that the Exodus actually happened. I mean, could it be that the Exodus is some fairy tale myth invented by religious leaders to teach us a moral about good versus evil, oppression versus freedom? I mean, could it be that we've been believing a lie, albeit a, a very inspiring and motivating one? Well, to begin to answer that question, I've come here to Beni Hassan, a small village just south of modern-day Minya in Middle Egypt, to a series of remote tombs that are cut into the hillside, to uncover perhaps the only physical proof there is in this whole country of Semitic people arriving in the land of Egypt itself. This is a breathtaking place to bury your dead. The people buried here are actually from the elite class of nomarchs, they were provisional governors here in the Middle Kingdom period, about four and a half thousand years ago. Now there are 39 tombs here in Beni Hassan, and each one of them has an outer court, an inner pillared room, and then a shaft that leads down to the burial chambers. But we haven't come all of this way for me to show you things that are dead and buried. Today we've come here so I can show you something that is still very much alive. These tombs are covered from floor to ceiling in vibrant, beautiful, living art. The paintings here depict everyday scenes of the common life of this area at the time, as well as stories about their history and livelihood, their homes and their culture. Standing in the tomb here, I really get a sense of the sheer scale of this place, which is why it's a little bit boomy and echoey. But when you look at the beauty in the art here, it amazes me because it tells me something about the culture of this people. That at the end of their lives, when they bury themselves, they want to be surrounded with story. They, they want the future generations to come here and not learn about how they died, but how they lived. They wanted to tell them about their experiences and help them to get to know them personally. 
I mean, this blows my mind. I mean, us in the West, when we die, we just erect a tombstone with a couple of words on it. But in this culture, they wanted to really communicate the heart of who they were to the future generations. And as a storyteller myself, this truly just inspires me. And it's actually amongst all of this storytelling that our Exodus journey truly begins. This might be a small section of the overall paintings in these tombs, but its significance to us cannot be overstated. What you see here are figures wearing a fashion that is completely different to any other people depicted in these tombs. Their upper bodies are covered, and their clothes are of a striped red and spotted nature. This was the clothing of the Semitic people of the time, and the scene here depicts a, a story of Asiatic migrants arriving in Egypt with the hopes of starting a new life, making this the only recorded history we have in the whole of Egypt of the arriving presence of a Semitic people in this land. From religious fairy tale myth to recorded historical evidence, these tombs tell us a story we all need to hear. God's people did indeed come to this land. But the question remains, did they actually settle? Well, to answer that question, I need to take you about 200 miles north to a land that the Bible calls Goshen. These fields behind me here may not look like much, but hidden underneath them is some of the most significant archaeological evidence for the existence of God's people here in Egypt. This area around me is known as Goshen. It's found actually in Genesis 47 as well as in Exodus chapters 8 and 9. And Goshen is the very place where God's people lived for the 480 years that they were here present in Egypt. Now unfortunately, much of that evidence is still under the ground here. But there is one place, not too far from where I'm standing right now, where they've been able to excavate. And what they've found there is truly significant. Unfortunately, it's not a public place, so I wasn't able to get in there and film. But we were given some footage, and that footage reveals to us what it would have been like for God's people to live in this land. These pictures and artist renderings show what is essentially the site of an ancient home here in Avaris. In the excavation, you can clearly see various rooms, as well as the walls and the general structure of the house as a whole. Now, the form of the house is not in the style of Egyptian homes in the time of the Exodus, but is actually North Syrian in its form and construct, the area that the patriarchs were originally from. This particular house has become known as the House of Jacob, and archaeologists have found something fascinating in the gardens surrounding it, a portico with 12 pillars. Is this coincidence, or is it further evidence of the presence of the settlement of a Jewish people celebrating in their architecture the 12 tribes of their generation? Either way, the home that is being discovered not too far from where I'm standing right now proves to us something beyond a shadow of a doubt. You see, Beni Hassan showed us that a Semitic people arrived in Egypt. The house of Jacob shows us that they settled here.
It's a really important thing that we can base the story of Exodus in actual recorded history for us. But as I said earlier, sometimes the fate and the blessings of somebody can change in a heartbeat. And as is so often the case when an immigrant group grows to prominence and power within a nation, the majority group of that nation can often fear and respond in tragedy and evil. And that's exactly what we see happen here. Let me read on from verse 8. Then a new king, and by king, when it's mentioned here, it's always referring to a pharaoh. Then a new pharaoh, who did not know about Joseph, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become much too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies and fight against us and leave the country. The Pharaoh begins to freak out. That This Pharaoh has no connection to the Jewish people. He has no connection to the Pharaohs of the past uh, who were influenced by Joseph and his wise decision-making. He has no connection. It's been over three generations have passed uh, as this person now comes into power. And because he's got none of that connection, he just sees this Israelite group as a massive group of people that he knows are not Egyptian, and he fears them. Now, it's really interesting because Moses uses a specific word in verse 10 to describe this. He says, come, we must deal, this is Pharaoh speaking, come, we must deal shrewdly with them. That's exactly the same word that's found in Genesis 3 when Moses writes about Satan as a snake. He says the snake was more shrewd or crafty than any of the other animals. Remember, this is still Moses writing. He takes that same word that he applies to Satan and he puts it right on Pharaoh straight away. And basically what he's saying here is Pharaoh is in this narrative going to be like for us the snake. He's going to be the one who is going to have influence over us. And he's the one that's going to make decisions that are of the enemy, not of God. And and, and Moses wants us to understand the satanic influence, the evil that sits behind all the things that Pharaoh does next. Let me read it to you from verse 11. So they put slave masses over them to oppress them with forced labor. They built Pithom and Ramesses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more that they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with hard labor in brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields and in all their hard labor, the Egyptians used them ruthlessly. There's this power that comes from Egypt on Israel. They're thrown into slavery and that slavery is painful it's hard, and it's in the totality of who they are. Now, I want you to see something really important here. What Moses is trying to communicate to us as we read this is a simple starting point of slavery. He's trying to help us to understand that there is a key starting point that happens so often in slavery, and that's the starting point of insecurity. You see, Pharaoh here acts insecurely, before his people. He looks at this migrant group who have grown to a big size and they've never done anything to make Pharaoh think that they're going to rebel against him. But he's so afraid of that. And in his own insecurities of losing control and losing his own power, he decides to suppress them in order to make sure that he would increase. And what you need to know is that insecurity is so often the primary brokenness that actually enslaves and oppresses other people. Say that again. Insecurity is primarily 
often, so often, the primary brokenness that is the driving factor that would enable people to be enslaved and oppressed. That's what insecurity does. And, and Moses is trying to get us to know this because actually throughout the whole Exodus journey, you're going to see time and time again the issue of insecurity rising up and then the issue of needing to deal with it before God. This is why one of the movements of the five movements of Exodus is all about identity. Because when our identity is broken, we operate out of a place of insecurity. And insecurity happens because we look at ourselves and we look at others and we make comparisons between them and we make assumptions between them. And you'll recognize in your own life that your insecurities will always tempt you to suppress others in order to elevate yourself. Are you guys with me? And if that's the case, here's the key that Moses is giving us right at the start of the story. He's saying, if there's one thing that you could do to align yourself to the process of Exodus, if there's one thing you could do to position yourself for more freedom in your future, it's deal with your insecurities. And how do we deal with our insecurities? We don't deal with them by trying to become more secure in ourselves. We don't try to convince ourselves that we're actually not as bad as we think. We don't try to convince ourselves that we've got power ourselves. No, what we do, this is what the Bible says, the only way you free yourself from insecurity is not finding security in yourself, but finding more security in God. By actually looking out of yourself and looking to Him and saying, I will follow Him, I will trust Him, I will put my promises, my life, my faith in Him. As I find my security in Him, I'm able to deal with the insecurities that sit in me. See, as we become more secure in Christ and who we are as his children made in the image of God, we become less a vehicle of slavery and injustice and more a vessel of freedom and grace. That's the journey of Exodus. And Moses is saying, get that right here, right at the start. And I want to speak that over every person in this room. If there's one thing I invite you to deal with over the next 24 weeks is to bring your insecurities to God. He's got you. And he, let me say it this way, there is no other name more powerful than the name of Jesus. We just sang it. But we sing it, do we believe it? And if we believe it, then we're able to move away from our tendency to enslave and oppress others and become more like Christ wanting to bring freedom and grace in this world. And there's an army rising up of people that are willing to do that. That, my friends, is an echo of Exodus. Now, what does this slavery feel like? What was it like to be found in slavery in those days? What was it like to actually be oppressed? Was it just a physical thing or was it much more than that? And were men and women enslaved in the same way? Well, to answer those questions, let me take you back once again to Egypt. We are introduced to the starting point of the Exodus narrative in Exodus chapter 1 verses 8 to 11, where we learn of a new king who comes to power in Egypt and immediately places Israel into slavery. I mean, literally overnight their freedoms are gone and they're suddenly thrust into forced labor, constructing storehouses as well as temples of Pharaoh across the land. One such temple is here at Telbasta some 80 kilometers northeast of modern-day Cairo. Built for the worship of the feline goddess Bastet some three and a half thousand years ago, 
The temple now lays here in ruin, but gives us a unique insight into the kind of slavery the Jewish people were placed under. Standing here today and being surrounded by all of this is an incredibly rare privilege. I mean, these are three and a half thousand year old antiquities. And being here, I get a great sense of the grandeur and the size that this temple would have been. It would have taken thousands of slaves years to construct it. And, and take, for example, the granite here. This granite is not from around here. It's probably from a quarry about a thousand kilometers away. So the slaves would have had to have dragged this here and then shaped and constructed it on site. I mean, that's incredibly backbreaking work in the harsh climate of this land. Not only this, but the slaves also would have had to spend their days carving out idols of gods that they refused to worship and worldviews that they refused to accept. Case in point is seen here. Uh, this is the image of Ka. It's two arms pointed to the heavens, which in ancient Egyptian religion symbolized the soul. But notice something. There's no head and no real body to it. And that was on purpose because this was communicating that our connection of our soul to the gods is devoid of any of our personal identity. Now, think about the Jewish slaves and their worldview. They worshipped a God that they saw as a good father who they understood created them in the image of their God. So the idea of kind of taking away the identity from our worship of God would have been actually deeply offensive to them. All of which actually raises a really important point for each of us to reflect on as we think about our own journeys from slavery to freedom. You see, slavery is never just merely physical. It involves the whole of who we are. The mental, emotional, and social toll on the Israelites in constructing this temple was just as cruel as the physical toll that was required to do it. And I think actually that that was the main point. You see, in constructing this temple, it was designed not just to break the Jewish people's physical backs, but their spiritual ones as well. There was one further aspect of slavery that was unique to the Israelites here in Egypt and actually profound for shaping the whole of the Exodus itself. And to tell you about that, I now need to take us from the temple here in Telbasta to the remote turquoise mines of Sinai Peninsula. The Sinai Peninsula is nicknamed the Land of Turquoise by the local Egyptians that live here. The mining of it dates back to the First Dynasty, when Egyptians sourced it from the coastal mines and mountains of this area. And while much like today, it was originally used for jewellery and ornaments, its adoption by many pharaohs created a mythology around it centred on the idea that the stone was a protector and bringer of good fortune. So many Egyptian women wore the stone in hopes of becoming pregnant that the goddess of fertility, Hathor, was eventually called the Mistress of Turquoise.
the turquoise that is mined in this area is some of the purest in the world and it, and it really is so vivid and so beautiful. But as is often the case in life, sometimes the things that are most beautiful on the outside are actually distracting us from the things that are dark within. This is a small example of the mines that are found scattered in the mountains in this area. Now, the actual turquoise itself is mined from the veins that you can see here in the ceiling and on the walls, and then sent for processing at the plants in this region. Now, the earliest evidence suggests that the mining was done here by local Sinai inhabitants at the start. But as the turquoise gained in its popularity and demand, they needed to ship in some additional labor force. So it was here in the hills of Sinai that many Jewish slaves were forced to come to work, spending countless hours in cramped and awkward conditions, often in the dark, digging and excavating for the precious stone that would go on to adorn the rich and powerful. And here is what is important about all of that. You see, unlike the muscle and brawn that was needed to construct the temple in Talbasta, the work here in these caves was intricate and detailed and very repetitive it was work that was done largely by women. I want you to think on this. Imagine a, a thousand enslaved Hebrew women in these caves, working day in, day out to mine a precious stone that would go on to be adorned by Egyptian women to symbolize their freedom and power. <laughs> and if that wasn't kind of ironic enough, the actual ancient Egyptian goddess of justice came to be symbolized by turquoise. Yeah the goddess of justice. I, I, I think for the Jewish women enslaved in these caves for hours upon hours, surely turquoise was anything but. So slavery impacted both men and women alike. Whether it was in temples or in caves, in cities or in deserts, the Jewish people were placed under a brutal regime that impacted their mental, physical, social, and spiritual lives. Indeed, the oppression was so strong that in order to stop it, it would require an equal but opposite force that was so powerful that actually the whole of history itself turned on its axis. And how did that power begin? Well, Exodus chapter 1 introduces us to two Hebrew unnamed midwives who have the courage and the audacity to finally stand up against an empire of injustice and draw the line in the sand and say enough is enough. Deliverance so often begins in the most unlikely of places. Would you like to meet these two women? Yeah. Exodus 1, starting in verse 15. The king of Egypt said to, Hebrew, said to the Hebrew midwives, whose name were Shifra and Pua, when you help the Hebrew women in childbirth and observe them on the delivery stool, if it's a boy, kill him. But if it's a girl, let her live. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. Just a few verses here that Moses includes, but are, this is the most incredible turning point in this whole story. Because the very first people that stand up against an evil empire and an evil regime are two women. 
two women who have the courage when Pharaoh has told them to do something. And remember, they're slaves, so they actually have no choice whether they do it or not. They're expected to carry it out. They decide that enough is enough and it's time to make a change. And Moses, who's writing this, it's fascinating to me because Moses was steeped in the culture of patriarchy. He understood the culture of patriarchy and the way that men were were seen as the, the movers and the shakers and the change agents. And he says, you need to understand before I'm even on the scene, the people that really change history are two women. Two women that are willing to stand up at a time when they so easily could have just turned a blind eye and say, this slavery is wrong. The Bible describes them here as Hebrew midwives. Now, the profession of being a midwife, midwifery in those days, was incredibly important. In fact, in the ancient Near Eastern time, uh, particularly in Egypt, infant mortality rates were incredibly high. So the, the profession of being a midwife was very respected. And often family would put their trust in a particular midwife to ensure that their child would be delivered alive or not. In other words, they saw that the midwives held in their hands literally the power of life and death. And in Egypt in particular, these midwives were deeply revered. They were revered because of the superstitious and supernatural belief that the, that the Egyptians had around life and death and birth and that sort of thing. And so they would see these midwives as actually very important people within society. Now, we know that these particular midwives... Uh, are actually, because they're Hebrew, they would have been slaves. Now, because Pharaoh deals with them, it shows both the respect to the, to the role they had, but it was also likely that these two midwives were midwives within Pharaoh's wider harem, uh, probably within his house in particular. And he says to these two Hebrew women, hey, when the men are delivered, when you deliver a boy, kill him right there and right there. Now, you might think, why would a Hebrew kill another Hebrew in those moments. Again, you've got to remember, this is slavery. This is a time when when you're given an order, you never doubt it, and you do what it says. Not only that, though, history will tell you that so often when a majority culture wants to do a genocide on a minority culture, so often that power will get members of the minority culture to carry out the genocide itself. That has happened throughout human history. And here we see another example of it. And so Pharaoh expects these two women to act. Now, the other interesting thing about being a midwife in those days is that midwives themselves were chosen for that role largely because they were infertile and barren. These are women that didn't, weren't able to bring their own children into the world. And because of that, they were then selected to bring the children of other people into the world. Now, you can imagine that could either be viewed as a bit of an embarrassment, a bit of a shame, or that could be viewed as a great gift. And we don't know what it is for these two particular women, but we do know that they are childless. We do know that they have no families of their own. And we know that they are slaves within Pharaoh's harem, and they're responsible for now committing genocide. And they decide that this is not what they're going to do. And I want you to see why. It says here in verse 17, the midwives, however, feared God. There it is. Very simple thing, feared God. And this fear of God was greater for them than the fear of Pharaoh. 
And by fearing God, they're not, it's this word is it's actually repeated a lot throughout the Old Testament. It's not about this idea of, of afraid or scared, but feared God is the idea of reverence and awe and worship and respect and humility of saying God is all powerful, He is all holy. We're not, and we need to we need to worship Him, respect Him, be in awe of Him. That's the idea of fearing. And, and what Moses tells us here is that these two women who are named Shifra and Pua, these two women are actually fearing God. And because they fear God, they're able to take a stand against what's happening to their people, and they're able to take a stand against what they've been told to do, which is to do genocide. Now, here's the important thing. All of this is Moses trying to communicate to us one really critical piece right at the start of the Exodus story. He's trying to say, no matter how powerful slavery might be, no matter how powerful the force of slavery might be, there exists in the world a power that is greater than it. And that power is the courage that comes upon us as humans that is fueled and driven by our fear of God. And that courage enables these two women to realize that despite how strong slavery was, it did not remove the power of their choice. They still had a choice. And their choice was obey Pharaoh's order and live or disobey Pharaoh's order and die. And they choose death to themselves so that others might live. Now, I want you to see why this is really important. Note this. The Hebrew midwives choose death for themselves so that others might live. That is the exact opposite of what insecurity does. Insecurity ensures life for yourself through the death of others. Are you with me, church? Do you follow this? And so what Moses is saying is there's Pharaoh in insecurity who's enslaving the Israelites and calling out for genocide. Here's two women who stand up against it because they decide that they have the courage in their fear of God that they're saying he is more powerful, he is more honorable, I'm going to listen to him over anything else, and they're willing to even sacrifice their own lives so that others might live. That's the exact opposite of insecurity, and Moses is saying, check out the power of these women. That when you're willing to stand in the gap against injustice, when you're willing to stand in the gap against slavery, when you realize that you still have the power to choose, then Exodus happens. The beginning of our Exodus story is the incredible story of two women who make an overtly political decision to stand against the political authority of their day and fear God first. And that changes everything. That literally is the starting point of everything. The courage to choose life over death. And what Moses is asking of everybody reading this right at the start of the story is essentially this. Whom ultimately will you serve? Come on, church. Whom ultimately will you serve? Will you serve me? He's saying, this is God. Will you serve me or will you serve Pharaoh? Will you serve life or will you serve death? Will you serve the things of the flesh and your sinful nature? Or will you serve and fear me and want to please me? Which will you choose? He's basically saying. Because here's two women 
who are under the oppression of slavery from Pharaoh, and they make a choice for life. And then there's us. And we have to think, are we in such a situation that they're in? Like, like are the choices that we're making ones where we could literally die? And yet, how often do we choose death over life? Yet, how often do we choose to remain enslaved rather than move into life? You see, Shifra and Pua teach us that we don't have to be passive in the face of evil. Shifra and Pua actually teach us that we don't have to adopt the role of victim in a story. Shifra and Pua actually teach us that when we fear God, we can find the courage inside of us to actually stand against the darkness of our day and say enough is enough and flex the one muscle that always breaks through and that's the muscle that is no. This is enough. This is done. We are not gonna do what you say. And in the beauty of this, Exodus begins. And I want you to see what God is doing here. And this is so beautiful to me. You see, note this. The very instruments that Pharaoh had chosen to carry out his plans became the very instruments that God uses to thwart those plans. Isn't that powerful? Because because Pharaoh wanted to use the women to kill the kids. That was his desire. He wanted to use these women to kill the kids, to kill the men that were being born. And God steps in and says, I'm going to use those very instruments to change the world. I'm going to use those very instruments to be the starting point of no. I'm going to use those very instruments to be the beginning point of all that I'm going to do in the rest of the story. You see, what Pharaoh wanted to do was bring women under subjugation. Notice this, women who are the carers and the givers of life are chosen by Pharaoh to be the destroyers of it. And these women say, no, that's not our role. That's not who we are. We are not the destroyers of life. We're the carers and the givers of life. And these two midwives say, we're the deliverers of life. And I want you to see the powerful prophetic thing that's happening here. These two women are basically saying, our role is to deliver life and not death. And so right at the start of the story, you see two women delivering Hebrew children to life. And this is a prophetic announcement of what God's going to do next in the story where he delivers a whole nation from death to life. But in the starting point, it's a microcosm on these two women. And I think essentially what they're saying is this. Hey, we're all midwives. We're all midwives. And we might not be delivering children, but we are delivering choices. The most spiritual act you will ever do is the act of a choice. Right at the end of the Exodus, and I'm jumping forward a little bit, Moses stands before his people and he says, today I give you life and death. Choose life. He says, me and my household, we're gonna choose life. And I wanna stand before you at the beginning of your own Exodus. As you thought about your departure point last week and you think about Exodus that's ahead here, and I know the stories, oh, Andrew, if only you understood the slavery that you're under. And here's two women already under the slavery of a patriarchal society and culture, but equally under the slavery of Pharaoh and Egypt, who say we still have the power to choose life. My prayer for you as you start this journey is that you would find in the fear of God, in your relationship with him, the courage you need to say no to whatever it is that is enslaving you. 
The courage that you need to say, I'm going to make better choices. The courage that you need to say, I'm not going to be tempted by that sin anymore. The courage that you need to say no where you have been saying yes. And as you take that courage, you align yourself to the freedom that comes, not with the insecurity that wants to enslave, but the fear of God that wants to bring life.